it's good to be with you guys tonight. Um, you're probably realizing if you're looking at your bulletin that we're, you know, kind of hit the bottom of the barrel a little bit here. Ryan, you know, he came in clutch this morning. Uh, you're re realizing the sermon title. It's probably not Neil again, right? It's going to be me. Uh, and so I'm guessing some of you, if you've been following college football at all, are probably kind of fans of the Florida State situation. Florida State was down to the third string quarterback, uh, and a lot of people thought they should still be in. And so I'm guessing if you showed up to evening service with the flu going around, knowing Neil's not going to be here, Ryan came in at the last second, you're probably going to get the third string quarterback. And so it's good to be with you guys. Uh, I'm excited that God's word is still powerful, uh, regardless of who is standing beside behind the pulpit. And so uh, it really is. It's a privilege to be with you. I'm glad to have the opportunity to open up God's word. And God's word really is powerful. It really can do things in our lives and does things to us. And so tonight we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. Specifically, we'll be focusing on verses 3 uh, through 12. And so if you guys can turn there, I just want to kind of orient us a little bit to the text uh, as we're going to pick it up and what we're going to focus on tonight. And so I preached a sermon in the spring on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And what I kind of argued there was that 1 Thessalonians is sent to a church that's trying to figure out how are we going to make it when the founding pastor is gone? How are we going to survive? How are we going to thrive in our faith when our pastor is gone? When, how are we going to continue the mission when the missionary isn't here anymore? And that's kind of the argument I think Paul is making in 1 Thessalonians. And in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, Paul says some really interesting things, but he says that the Thessalonians became imitators of Paul himself. And that's an important phrase there because he goes on to say that when they first heard the word, they then went and they shared the gospel with the surrounding cities and regions, so much so that Paul didn't even feel the need to go there and tell the gospel to those people. And so what we see in chapter one is a church who imitated the life of Paul to continue the mission of the church even in his absence. And so what I think happens in chapter two is Paul kind of saying, if you want to keep growing in your faith, you want to keep thriving, not just surviving, you want the church not to just keep the numbers we've got, but to keep growing, then you need to imitate my life like you already have been. And chapter two functions in two ways for us as we read it. And it functioned in two ways, I think, for Paul. First, it's this, is when Paul was writing this letter, he's writing to a church in a town that he got kicked out of. And that's important to know because if you can imagine, Paul's there for three weeks, a bunch of people come to faith in Christ, they run this guy Paul out of town. Well, what's the quickest way to kind of stamp the faith out of these people? What's well, to discredit Paul? To say, you don't want to imitate that guy. He was a loser. You know, you don't want to be like that guy and sharing the gospel with me like you are right now. He was a whack job. He was trying to deceive you. He was just like, you know, in, in that day, there were what they call peripatetic philosophers, meaning philosophers that walked from town to town. And they would come and they would gain a following to get money. It was like a livelihood for them. And, you know, people are probably accusing Paul saying, he's just like one of those guys. He's trying to get money from you. He feels a little insecure. He wants a following, people to glorify him, people to sing his praises. He never was here for your good. He was trying to get something from you. And so second, the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians kind of functions as Paul's way 
to help the Thessalonians see that when my name is discredited, the gospel message isn't also to be discredited. I actually came to you with high character. And so although they're discrediting my name and my message, don't lose faith in the gospel itself. Because oftentimes the message of the gospel is tied up with the messengers of the gospel, and Paul recognizes that to a degree. But I think secondly, and for our purposes tonight, uh, Paul is trying to say, if you want to keep thriving in your faith, if you want the mission of the church to keep going, you need to imitate me. And chapter two gives us a pretty good insight to what it means to imitate Paul as we go forth in the mission. It gives us a good idea about how do we imitate Paul in the midst of a culture, in the midst of a situation that would like us to not follow Jesus. And so chapter two just outlines different things that Paul did as he was trying to uh, share his faith of the Thessalonians in the first place. And so we're going to see what are the things that characterize Paul's life that he wants the Thessalonians to continue to imitate and thereby us to imitate. Uh, So let me uh, read these verses here. And so if you'll follow along with me, and then I'll pray and we can see what God's word has for us this evening. Uh, Beginning in verse one in chapter two. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work day, night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. If you'll join with me in prayer. Father, give us grace to understand your word, to apply it to our lives. Father, we all sense that we have uh, a hole in our hearts. We have empty buckets that we seek to be filled uh, with the people around us. But God, we pray that you would help us be content in you, content with your glory, content with your word, and that contentment would fuel us to serve our families and the world around us, especially during this Christmas season. So help us understand your word aright and apply it well to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when you guys think about Christmas and the season that's upon us, I'm guessing that your expectations kind of hit one of these three categories. 
either you might like me and my grandpa when I was a kid have been watching a lot of Hallmark movies. And you kind of have this Jingle Bells view of Christmas. It's all candy con- candy canes, snowflakes. It's kind of fun, bouncy songs that just make you feel good about yourself. It's those types of things. Or maybe on the flip side of that, you have deep sorrow around Christmas. Maybe your family has lost someone that you loved. Someone really important to you uh, has done something to kind of exile them from the family. Maybe Christmas is a time of deeper sorrow for you. Or maybe somewhere in the middle, and probably like most of us, would be something like Clark Griswold in Christmas Vacation, if you've seen that movie, uh, where it's kind of the end of the Christmas party, and he's had it. And then, you know, someone says, let's just get out of here before it could get any worse. And he says, worse? How could it get any worse? And then the PG version is, we're already as bad as it could get. You know, It's kind of like this, families in town, things are chaotic. We're trying to get the lights on the tree. We're trying to keep the kids behaved. I'm just trying to keep myself sane. We probably have one of those experiences of Christmas. But what I've noticed is that in this attempt to just survive during Christmas, we miss the opportunity to thrive in our faith. We know Christmas is about Jesus, obviously. But if we're being honest, it's like going to a Christmas Eve service maybe having a little devotional before we open the Christmas presents, that's about as good as it gets sometimes. We don't often think of Christmas being this chance for our faith to be deepened and for our faith to be shared with our family members. We often, in the midst of just trying to make it, miss out on thriving, miss out on the great opportunity of witness this is to family members maybe you only see once or twice a year. We miss out on just trying to make it through the holidays that we miss out on this opportunity to serve our family in ways that we don't always get to. I think often this survival mentality is kind of brought to the surface when we get around our families. We all have this tendency to act kind of a little stupid when we get around our families. You know, you might think of yourself as this great put-together person. You've made it. You have a great job. You have a great degree. Your kids are well-behaved. Your financial situation's in order. And then mom and dad show up at your house and you start acting like you're eight again. It's an odd reality. It's so strange. But when family gets involved, we just start to try to make it just trying to survive. Old sin patterns come back to haunt us. And we're not this robust person that all of us kind of in this room might think of each other as, but we're this kind of struggling Christian just hopping along trying to get through the holiday season. Well, in contrast to that, I think Paul is going to point us of how to thrive in our faith in the midst of a difficult circumstance. And so obviously the situation is different with Paul and the Thessalonians. and us at Christmas. But I would suggest that Christmas really reveals some of the worst of us. And oftentimes our families and when we're around them, it makes it the most difficult to follow Christ. And so in a sense, what Paul's writing to the Thessalonians in our experience over the next few weeks have some things in common that I just want to point out. And obviously this is all written on on late notice. I just want to note that. And so these are kind of just devotional application thoughts to you going home for Christmas to not just survive, but to thrive this Christmas season. And so I think what Paul is going to show us is this, is that to thrive in our faith in difficult times, we must learn how to be satisfied in God 
through Jesus Christ. And the way we're going to look at this passage today is kind of two movements. The first movement, the first kind of section here, is what I'm going to call the root of thriving as a Christian. To put it differently, it's the heart of the issue. What does the heart look like of someone who's thriving in their faith? The second movement will be the fruit of that person. What would it look like practically to be a thriving Christian amongst your family this holiday season? And so that's the way we're going to kind of tackle this passage. So if you look with me at verses 3 through 5 in chapter 2 here, we see that Paul instructs us in this way, that a thriving Christian is faithful to God's words, not to their own or the worlds around them. And so in Paul's day, after he got kicked out of town, there's people accusing him of different things, right? Paul, that message you brought, it was a lie. You know, they, they're accusing him of that. There's no truth in it. There's no substance. Paul, you're just trying to deceive us. They're talking to the Thessalonians. See, that Paul guy, he was flattering you. He was just saying kind things to you in order to get something from you. He was flattering you. That Paul guy, in the back of his mind, his deep motive, it was greed. He wanted money. He wanted material possessions from you. And so he brought this crafty message and you guys all fell for it. That Paul guy, his words, there's no truth in them. There's no substance to his words. Well, in contrast to that, Paul locates the whole of his message, both the words that he preaches about faith, but I think what, what Paul's recounting here is his whole life and conduct amongst the Thessalonians. And so it's not merely Paul behind a pulpit, but it's also Paul sitting at dinner with them. And what Paul is saying here is that his words are both bound to God's words. He came and preached the gospel of God to them. That happens in verse 2 there. But also when he speaks, he's not speaking to please man. He's not speaking with a pretext for greed. He's speaking as one that seeks to please God. His heart is content with God's word that is speaking through him, and it's content to say things that only God would be pleased to hear come out of his mouth. That's what Paul's arguing here, that his whole, every word that comes from his mouth, it's either God's word communicated like the Bible, or it's words that are honoring to the people sitting in front of him and that he would be happy for God to have heard him speak. Paul's words are held accountable to God. They're not just a message he created. When he preached the gospel, he preached God's gospel, not his. When he spoke to the Thessalonians, he spoke in such a way as his words were going to be held accountable by God himself. He doesn't change his words based upon his audience because he has an audience of one. He cares about what God thinks about his words, not about what the people in front of him care about his words. And so Paul is both faithful to God's revealed word, the Bible, and he's faithful for his words to be held accountable before God himself. And so what we see here, how we apply this, what would this look like in our lives? Well, I think this is that oftentimes we get around our family and we use our words to kind of play a little game with our family. We might flatter them a little bit. I like the new car. You know, did you lose weight this year? You look great at Christmas. Whatever it might be, we, we get people excited about themselves because we're fishing for a compliment back. Or sometimes there's situations that are going to happen in your family. There's 
someone that's maybe struggling in their faith. There's someone making difficult decisions that no one wants to talk to. No one wants to give them the honest truth about what's going on. And so they flatter them. They avoid the hard conversation. They don't speak the honest truth that their words are held accountable to God and their actions in their life are held accountable to God. We often just avoid the hard conversations and go about our Jingle Bells Christmas without having honest conversations when all the families in town. I think also <clears throat> is that we ought to take advantage of our chances to speak God's words to our family when we have them. Don't just get caught up in talking about the Michigan game, as fun as that's going to be. Don't talk about the weather for the millionth time or the new car you want to buy or the vacation home you might want to purchase. When you have all this opportunity for your family to be in town, try to take advantage to share God's word with them. This might be one of the only times you really get for everyone to be gathered. And in our culture, we're celebrating Christmas. It's about like this complex theological reality and people are singing Christmas songs happily. Take advantage of it. Be held accountable before God to speak God's word to your family when you're given the opportunity. Uh, and then maybe lastly, just speak the truth. Don't lie. And, and that's just simply, simply put like this. Paul is being accused of his words being lies. Both the things he said about God and the things he just said to them. He's said to be a flatterer. And try to take the opportunity to not fudge on maybe the details of your kids' academic highlights from the last year. Just be honest about them. Don't fudge the details of your latest vacation. You can be honest about how it actually went. You don't have to fudge the details of your life, play down the truth, or play up yourselves. You can be honest with the people in front of you. Don't lie blatantly, obviously, but don't lie subtly either. Your words when you're with your family. You might be wanting to impress your older brother or maybe your dad that never seems to be happy with you. Make sure your words are used to speak the truth and your words are held accountable before God. And so a thriving Christian is committed both to God's word and he's committed for, to his words being held accountable before God himself. Well, secondly, a thriving Christian seeks God's glory and not their own. What Paul's accusers are bringing to him is something like this. They're accusing him of having a hole in his chest. They're accusing him of having an existential need, if you will. Like, Paul, you kind of have little man syndrome, and you've been looking for a following to hype you up a little bit. You know, a platform to stand on and have followers to come and sing your praises. Paul, you are just coming so that people would glorify you. You had this deep felt need, and you were trying to get a congregation to meet that need for you. You had a hole in your chest, and they're saying, the Thessalonians, and you were used to fill it. Paul was seeking glory from you. But what Paul responds, he says, I didn't seek glory from you. I've never been concerned about my own glory. I considered, as he says in Philippians, everything in my life to be rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul is deeply concerned, not with his glory, but with the glory of God. <clears throat> and maybe a way to think about this would be in our catechism, the first question, what's man's chief end? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What Paul is getting at here is that when there's this hole in someone's chest, it's revealing that they're not seeking God's glory, 
They're seeking their own glory. That hole in your chest means that you're not seek, you don't have joy. You're not satisfied. If you are constantly finding yourself being discontent, not joyful, I would suggest to you that it's revealing that you're more concerned with your image, you're more concerned with your name and your glory than you are with God's. Because God's glory and your contentment aren't in competition. You will be most satisfied when God is most glorified in your life, as John Piper often says. And so Paul is getting at that reality that his chief contentment is Jesus Christ himself. So he's not seeking glory from anyone else. He's seeking God's glory, and that's what makes him most happy. He doesn't need to get it from other people. My wife Jess and I have this kind of phrase we use. Uh, we call it, <laughs> in not a weird way, we call it, uh, you have you like your love bucket. <clears throat> and what it means is if I come home one day, and I'm like, if I come home tonight, and I'm like, Jess, did you tune into the service? She's like, yeah. Like, what'd you think? Was was it good? She's like, oh yeah, it was really good. Is eventually she's going to say, your bucket's empty, isn't it? And what it means is I've kind of got this empty bucket and I'm looking for Jess to fill it, you know, with her words of praise, her compliments to me. Or maybe I come home and it's like, can we just snuggle up and watch a movie? And it's like, what she's kind of begins to get at is like, your bucket's empty, isn't it? Like, you just need a little love from me. Like, you need me to affirm you, to know that I love you and I care about you. Your love bucket is empty. And what Paul is accusing, or what these accusers of Paul are probably saying is, Paul's love bucket is empty, and he sought the Thessalonians to fill it for him. And Paul says, that's not how it was at all. And what Paul points us on to is to say that our deepest satisfaction comes from God's glory. When we're content with God being glorified and not us. When people don't sing our praises, they sing God's praises. And even if, when they don't sing God's praises, we know that God's going to be glorified regardless in and through our lives. And it gives us contentment to not need people to sing our praises. What might that look like uh, in our lives? I think a few things happens when you gather with your family, when we begin to lose sight of God's glory and seek our own. It might be the person who's fishing for compliments, right? They say, yeah, you know, school's been really hard lately. I've been working 60 hours a week. And you want someone to say, you're such a hard worker. You're such a diligent student. You're so smart. You say, yeah, you know, I got a new job. Uh, there's a lot of candidates. And, you know, the, I guess they thought I was most qualified. And they say, wow, that guy is really successful. You're compliment seeking. And however, you might go about that. Some of us probably looks a little bit immature, but I think we're doing the same thing. You know, when the heat comes with your family, you might end up withdrawing. There's probably always someone in your family that does this. You kind of feel like you're not getting the attention you want. And so you find yourself kind of going to the back room just so someone can come and find you and say, we really wanted you to be with us. We really want you to join the festivities. No, they didn't think that about you. And you're, so you're trying to fish for that need and that acceptance because your bucket has become empty. Some of us end up over-serving. When everyone comes to the house, we are so focused. Are the hard-boiled eggs on the table? Is the turkey, is it done just perfectly? What do they think about my placemats and my place settings? Are they nice enough? Do people like them? They can never sit down and enjoy the company because they're so focused on everything being perfect for everyone else. Ultimately, so they say, she's such a good host. He's such a good cook. It's so fun to go to their house. Aren't they great servants? 
we're over-serving with this desire to get compliments back. Or maybe you, someone in your family, or maybe it's you, does the freak out thing. You know, it's like we start talking about politics and someone just loses it, right? Like they freak out, they run in the other room, they're crying, they're yelling, there's a big fight. And they go back and say, I didn't mean that. Your opinions are great. You know, we, th we love having you around. We love having these discussions. You freak out to draw attention to yourself. We have all these things we do uh, in these subtle moments, but ultimately what it reveals is it's a heart that's not content in God himself. And so if we want to be a thriving Christian, even when the pressure increases around our family, we need to be meeting with God, meditating on God's word and making ourselves satisfied with God himself. So that's the root. It's a heart that's committed to God's word. And it's a heart that's committed to God's glory above our own. So what's the fruit of this? What might this look like uh, practically in your life? And, that, and that's what you get in verse uh, seven. Paul kind of switches. We didn't do this. We didn't do this. We didn't do this. But what did we do when we were around you? Paul says this, we were gentle like a nursing mother taking care of her own children when we were with you. So a thriving Christian will be gentle, they'll be patient, and they'll be relational. Paul says, I didn't use my authority to burden you. I use my authority to serve you, to be patient with you, and to be kind with you. So this Christmas, when so many of your family come into town and they disagree with you politically, religiously, morally, and you have that temptation to belittle them, to say, you don't know what you're talking about, to outcast them, to talk about them behind your back, uses an opportunity like Paul to be gentle, to be patient. When immaturity is revealed in your kids or in your parents, take it as an opportunity to be gentle, to be patient, to be long-suffering when people accuse you of things, to not revile in return. A thriving Christian is someone content with God's word, content with God's glory, and so they don't need things from people. They're able to give things to people. They're able to be gentle and kind. And maybe it's a side note to this whole thing, because obviously there's a lot of applications we could draw. If you're witnessing someone in our church, in ministry, and their life doesn't, a gospel minister, doesn't seem to be characterized by gentleness, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, there's serious reason to question what they're doing. Paul's saying, I was gentle among you. So just keep that in the back of your mind that we can often confuse zeal or like intensity and angry and bitterness with zeal. And Paul's saying, I'm at my most zealous and I was the most gentle, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So that's a side note there just to keep in the back of your mind. Um, but it's going to uh, reveal itself in gentleness. Secondly, a thriving Christian serves as they share. That's verses 9 and 10 there. Paul talks about, uh, we worked, we toiled day and night. Paul was a tent maker, maybe a leather worker. And what he's getting at is this. I didn't just come to talk to you about Jesus and expect you guys to kind of give me shelter, you know, do my dishes to feed me. He says, I stayed up all night building things to serve so that I could provide my own way. I wasn't a burden to you because he knew that would detract from the gospel message itself. I remember after I became a Christian, I used to go home in, in college and I'm zealous about Christ. I want my family to know Jesus. And so I'm excited to talk about Jesus. But the reality is I'm still immature. I'm like 19. 
And so you get home and you're like, oh, okay, grandma's going to be cooking for me. She does the dishes. She does my laundry. Grandpa mows, you know, all that stuff. As I began to realize much later, not in the moment, is that my immaturity was coming through to the fore and it was discrediting the gospel message. My unwillingness to do the dishes was making my uh, family unwilling to hear the words coming out of my mouth. And Paul recognizes that our life and our words are very connected. It's not like that misquoted Francis of Assisi quote, if you've ever heard it, it says, uh, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. Paul's not getting at that. We obviously know we have to preach the gospel with words, and that's a misquote anyways. Um, what he's saying is that your actions will either credit or discredit the gospel message for the people watching, oftentimes. And so we need to seek to serve as we share the gospel message, more with our family or in a, a watching world. And so maybe just one application to that would be this. When you go to your Christmas gathering, my wife does a great job with this, much better than I do, is we should have our focus on the dishes. And what I mean by that is this. There's two ways that dishes are important during family gatherings. One is you better bring a dish. No matter how young you are or how old you are, is you better show up with a casserole. You better show up with a salad. You better show up with a drink, something. Because you want to show up and let people know, I'm there to serve. I'm there to love. I'm there to contribute. I'm not just here to take from you and then expect you to listen to me. I'm here to give my life to you. That's what Paul says, not just to share the gospel, but my own life. He says, my psukas is like soul, like myself with you. It's not just my words, it's me. I want to give everything I have to you. But the second with the dishes, as we all know, if you've ever been to a family gathering, some of you better than others, after the meal's done, those dishes start piling up quick. And I just think as Christians, let's be first in line to say, let's get on the dishes. Let's start rubbing them down. I'll be on the drying. I'll put them away. We want to be the people who are bringing a dish and we're doing the dishes that will characterize and adorn the gospel message as it goes forth. Well, lastly is this. A thriving Christian is both a caring mother and he's a clear father. And so in leadership, it needs to be caring and it needs to be clear. And what I think we take away from this is that we need to speak the truth in love. We need to take these opportunities to be with our family, if we're older, especially with more wisdom and more authority. Use these opportunities to instruct the younger people in your family, especially if they're going kind of wayward. Use these to speak the truth in love. Be clear. Use your authority to help serve your family and move them forward. But it also means we should be clear with the gospel. We shouldn't be ambiguous about it. We should take risks to say when you're sitting with grandpa, you're sitting with Auntie Sally or whatever, say, hey, what do you think about Christmas? Do you believe Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Like we were singing it earlier when we were caroling. Do you believe that song? Jesus became a man. What do you think about all this Christmas stuff? We need to be clear about the gospel. Like a father, we need to be clear and direct with our message, and we need to do it with gentleness. Paul says our speech and our life ought to be gentle and also be direct. And we ought to use our words in that way. So how do we do this? It's a tall task, right? Uh, to expect ourselves to move from what typically characterizes us as deep immaturity during the Christmas season to maturity. How do we move from someone who's just barely getting by, who's trying not to fall back into that sin again when I go back to my parents' house or when everyone comes into town, 
to someone who's like this thriving, vibrant Christian, how do I take it? It's not just a chance to get a couple gifts, say hey to some people to save face, to taking this as a missional opportunity to share Jesus Christ with your family and one of the only chances you get this year. Well, it comes down to this. I want to return to that idea of existential emptiness, that hole in our stomach, that hole in our heart that we seek to fill. We often, when we get around our family, have that hole exposed more than any other time in our life. When dad comes back around and he never really complimented you, you go seeking for compliments. When it felt like you can never have security based upon your family or your financial situation, you go looking for security, for someone to tether you, to ground you, and you'll take it wherever you can get it from. We do all these things because we have this hole in our heart that's not being satisfied by Christ, and we're looking anywhere to have it filled. Jess often gets on me about uh, filling my car up at like the worst gas stations in town. Uh, And she's like, why don't you go to Costco? We got the membership. It's cheaper at Costco. Go to Costco. The gas is better. You know, all these things that she has these theories about. And she's like, I know you go to like the worst and most expensive gas station on Stadium Drive. And it's true. It's totally true. And the reason for it is, is my car's empty. It's, you know, wavering between I've got like a quarter mile and it might break down right now. And so I've got to go anywhere that has gas to fill it up. And as Christians, so often, we're not going to God to fill that existential hole in our heart. We're going to any gas station that will fill it up for us. And that's so important to see here. But what I think Paul would put it or push us on to, where he would instruct us throughout his whole writings, and even First Thessalonians, is the gospel message itself has something to say to this. It has something to say about those existential, heartfelt longings and where to go to get them filled. Paul would instruct us not to seek security by all the people around you, but to live from the security that only comes from Jesus Christ, that our standing before our heavenly Father is secure and unwavering and unchanging. So you don't need to go and make sure your relationships are are secure and only say what you think people respond well to so you don't lose that relationship, is your standing with your heavenly Father will never change because God has secured it in Jesus Christ. We don't need to live craving for love from all the people around us because God loved you and he sent his son to die for you. He loved you so much, he said, I won't let anything come between me and you. And I'm not gonna let anything grab you out of my hand. So you don't need to go craving for the love and the affirmation and the respect of all your family members when they come into town is you can live to please God because he's pleased with you in Jesus Christ. We can serve from Christ's service. We don't need to be served. God himself has served us, laid his life down for us. And so we don't need to gain service and from everyone else to fill our bucket. God has already filled it when Christ came and laid his life down for you. So what I want you to see is before you go into the holiday season, before kind of the immature you comes back out, is to recommit yourself to God's word, recommit yourself to God's glory, but realize both those things really come from recognizing we're starting from a place of love, security, affirmation, so on and so forth from God himself so that we don't have to go seek it from everyone else. The hole in your heart is already filled by Christ, and we need to recognize that it's never going to go empty. 
that God, his promises will always come true, and we don't need to go living for the approval, the love, the respect, all those things from our family members. And that should uh, get us on our way to being a mature, thriving Christian, and not just one that's surviving uh, this Christmas season. So hope this is helpful. Uh, join with me in prayer. Father, your word is good. Your word is powerful. We pray that that hole that we often feel in our hearts would be filled with Christ. We pray that we wouldn't go seeking affirmation from all the people around us trying to do whatever we think would make them happy, but we would know that in Christ you were satisfied with us. We wouldn't need to go gain glory from the world because with Christ we will one day be glorified. We don't need to go look for security from all these other people and our work and our money and all these things because we have security from you yourself in the secure foundation of Jesus Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection. God, let us live from security, not for security. Let us live for you uh, this Christmas season around our family. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.